thankful to be here. Let's move along in Stephen's sermon today. We're seeing Stephen stand up and give a defense of the gospel. A person who loves Christ is willing to live in a way that exalts Christ even if it costs him everything. The believer in Jesus is willing to mortify sin daily. The believer in Jesus is courageous enough to call others to mortify sin daily. The believer in Jesus is even willing to seal his message with his own death if God should will it. One should look at all the examples throughout Christianity of many that have stood up like Stephen. One such example is John Bradford, a man who was burned at the stake on July 1st, 1555. What got Bradford killed? Standing up against the false teachings of the Roman Catholic Church and standing up against unfaithful, professing believers. People that said they believed but lived totally different lives. Listen to the description of Bradford's life by one of his contemporaries. Neither was Bradford only such a practicer of repentance in himself, but a continual provoker of others thereunto, not only in public preaching, but also in private conference and company. Bradford was a man that would confront sin. (laughs) He was not ashamed of the gospel. He was a man very much like Stephen. Friends, this is what people of God do. Believers are repenters. They are also people who call others to repent. True believers are continuously seeking to kill sin in their own lives. And they are always calling others to find joy in Christ instead of their sin. This is exactly what we see in Bradford's life and Stephen's life. The question is, do we see this in our lives? Stephen was under the influence of God. Stephen was also under attack from the Jewish religious establishment. Stephen faced the false charges of blasphemy against Moses and blasphemy against God, speaking against the temple and speaking against the law. It's interesting, a man of God is being accused of being against the very things he stands for, as we will see. Stephen's defense was a masterpiece. Stephen used the law to make his defense. As we saw last week, Stephen explained how Moses had pointed forward to Jesus. Stephen also exposed the forefathers for being against the very God who had shown grace to them. Over the years, they had shown a pattern of continually turning away from the very God that was giving them grace. And Stephen used the entire Old Testament to give his defense of faith in Jesus Christ. We saw last week, there were three main themes in Stephen's survey of the Old Testament. God's grace was demonstrated towards his people. And God's appointed leaders were rejected by his people. And finally, God's appointed leaders pointed forward to the coming Messiah. 
We saw the sermon broke down into five time periods. Abraham's time period, Jacob's time period, Moses' time, tabernacle and temple time, and their time. Tonight we'll, or today we'll cover the last three, finish off Moses' time, and, and finish off his sermon. We left off in Stephen's explanation of Moses' time period, the time which Moses lived. Moses' life can be broken down further into uh, three 40-year periods, roughly. And that's how Stephen does it, in a sense. His first 40 years, as he grew up in Egypt. His second 40 years, while he was in uh, a way, um, uh, uh, separated from his people. And then his third 40-year period, where he comes and helps to deliver the people of Israel out of Egypt's bondage and also wanders with them in the wilderness. Stephen highlighted God's grace, the people's rejection, and the promise of the coming one in all three phases of Moses' life in his sermon. Notice in the first stage, in verses 20 to 22, you can see in your Bible, God's grace was seen in Moses' rescue from the Nile. And then in verses 27 and 28, Moses was still rejected by his people. As a matter of fact, it starts out with rejection. Even when Moses begins to look as like a deliverer, he steps up and says, hey, quit beating this Jewish uh, slave. It gets him in trouble. And his own people turn on him even then. However, Moses was even at this stage pointing forward to being that deliverer. Look at verse 25. You see this idea of the deliverer, him pointing forward to uh, a deliverer through his own life. You see this, and it says, he supposed that his brethren understood that God was granting them deliverance through him, but they did not understand. This concept of deliverance from an appointed leader of God, again, prefigures what was going to happen with Jesus, that he was going to be an appointed leader that would be then uh, be a deliverer. But every time this happens in Israel's history, whenever one of those came to be prefiguring a deliverer to come, guess what happens? They rejected that appointed leader. It's interesting. This is what Israel has done over and over throughout their time. Raise up a leader, reject that man. He was the one that was delivering you. Reject him anyway. And so what happens when Jesus shows up? The same exact thing. What does this show? Well, this shows a lot about our human hearts. And again, as we were going through this, I reminded you last time that the people of Israel had a major problem when Jesus showed up on the the scene. They associated themselves with the leaders, not with the people. They saw themselves as, oh, I'm like Moses. I'm like David. And the religious leaders did the same thing. So when Jesus shows up on the scene, they think we're not like The people were like the leaders. But what do they do? They do exactly what the people had done all along. They rejected the real leader. Jesus shows up and they reject him. Notice the second stage of Moses' life. It repeats the same thing. God still blesses Moses and gave him a wife and two sons. As verse 29 states, notice that in your Bibles. God also graciously revealed himself to Moses at the burning bush in verses 30 to 33. Do you understand what a condescension this was? That God would step down 
and show himself to Moses at the burning bush? Why? Did Moses deserve it? No, this was grace. See, I think often we often we, we miss a major point. And we hear it in our atheists, people that we're reaching out to, atheists that we reach out to. They say things like this, God needs to give me proof. If God will give me proof, if he will show himself to me, then I will believe. The problem with that is that reveals something about the heart of mankind. What is it? It's this. We think we're owed a revelation from God. Do you understand, folks? We're not. God doesn't owe us a revelation of himself. He's given us an amazing revelation of himself in what? Special revelation. We see it everywhere we look. We see he's obvious, isn't he? His power and divine nature are clearly seen by what has been made. But we still say we deserve it. When God showed himself to Moses, Moses got it. He was afraid. But God still condescended to reveal himself to Moses. God graciously promised to rescue the people from Egypt in verse 34. However, again, in a a sad twist, the deliverer Moses was described by Stephen as the one who was disowned by his people again, saying, notice in verse 35, it's repeated, who made you a ruler and a judge over us. That's the idea. They hate people that represent God. Again, Moses prefigured the deliverer to come who would be rejected by his own people. We see this in verse 35 This last half of 35, it says, The one whom God sent to be both a ruler and a deliverer with the help of the angel who appeared to him in the thorn bush. In other words, again, what's happening? It's being repeated. Moses is the deliverer. And yet right there in the same context, they are rejecting him. We see this again in the third stage of Moses' life. Again, as the people continued to grow in size and population, they were still rebellious towards God. Notice in verse 7, 36, it says, This man led them out performing wonders and signs in the land of Egypt and the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. What was this? This was God's grace. Oh, beloved, how many, t- how many of you have read Exodus? Uh, take some time and read it. It's an amazing book. As you go through the story, you see over and over and over, there would probably be one characteristic of the people more than any other. I think it's one that stands out. It's called complaining. They were grumblers, constantly complaining. Yet what did God do? As they continued to complain, God graciously poured out grace upon grace upon grace. What did they do? Complain. Why'd you take us out of Egypt? If we had it there, we'd have lots of food. So it gives them lots of meat, and then they complain. It's always complaining. Oh, I want you to listen to me closely. This is our problem. All too often, God pours out grace upon grace, and then we begin to think that's not good enough. I want more. What does that say about our hearts, ladies and gentlemen? 
This is who we are. This is who I am. I am prone to this still. This idea of I think I deserve more. Grace. So the question is, should God have stopped giving them grace? Well, he would have been righteous to do so. But it shows the glory of our God and the faithfulness of our king. He continued to pour out grace. Are y'all like that? Anybody in here like that? You give grace and somebody turns on you and you say, well, that's it. Had enough. Our God's not like that. Thousands of years, 1,500 years, God continued to show grace to these people. Generation after generation after generation of complaining, rebellious people, and God still gave them grace. God's grace was obviously on display. We saw it at Mount Sinai as God gave him the living oracles of God, as verse 38 states. However, despite all of this grace upon grace that God gave the sons of Israel, they were still rebellious. Notice, against their leader. Verse 39, it says, Our fathers were unwilling to be obedient to him, talking of Moses, but repudiated him in their hearts and turned back to Egypt, saying to Aaron, Make for us gods who will go before us for this Moses who led us out of the land of Egypt. We do not know what happened to him. At that time, they made a calf and brought a sacrifice to the, to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. Oh, man. If there was one thing you should get from the Old Testament, it should be this, right? Mankind is wicked. We are rebellious people. Even after being delivered, they do what? They make false gods. And despite this evil, God still promised them a Messiah. We see this in verse 37. Notice in verse 37, it points to Jesus again, that there would be a prophet that would arise like Moses, who God would raise up after him. However, in this last phase of, or phase of Moses' ministry, there's a new theme introduced. God's judgment by handing the people over to worship of their false god. See, God was being gracious and he was sustaining them as a people. But as time went along, he continued to see rebellion after rebellion after rebellion. And what did he do? Well, this is very interesting. Look at verse 42. Look at verse 42. It says, But God turned away and delivered them up to serve the host of heaven. Now, at that point, you think, the host of heaven, that sounds pretty good, doesn't it? The host of heaven? Delivered them up to serve the host of heaven. No, that is not good. The host of heaven is talking about literally heavenly demonic beings in this case. How do we know? Because it explains it. Notice, as it is written in the book of the prophets, it was not that, uh, it's not to me that you offered victims and sacrifices for 40 years in the wilderness. Was it? Oh, house of Israel, 
You also took along the tabernacle of Moloch and the stars of the god of Rampha. The images which you made to worship, I also will remove you beyond Babylon. Now this is very interesting. Because what it does is it shows that there was a pattern that was going on in the people. That literally the wording here is almost identical to Romans 1.24. In Romans 1.24, Paul stated this, Therefore God gave them over in the lust of their hearts to impurity, so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. Y'all know, we were talking about this on Wednesday night at our Wednesday night Bible study. What happens with the pagan nations is this. God reveals himself through general revelation. But the pagan nations in all unbelieving world look at this general revelation and they say, I don't want that God. I will not honor that creator. And in their hearts, they replace that God for the God that they make up in their own minds. Who is that God? Who are those gods? Well, here are some. Islam. Hindu. Hinduism. The, all these gods, these gods are what their hearts make up in their own minds as they suppress the truth of who God is. So what does God do with people that reject him and do not honor him and do not give thanks to him? What does God do? He gives them their idols. This is a very interesting thought. He gives them their idols? Yes. Beloved, he gives them over to the impurity of their hearts, the lust of their hearts, and they end up doing and embracing their idols even more. That is God's judgment on the pagan nations. And as we said in our Wednesday night Bible study, do you not see that in our country right now? We are being handed over. To the lust of the flesh. That is our country. That is what we're about. We're being handed over. Beloved. And it's the same thing God did with Israel. He delivered them over to their idols. They took those false idols. The star. Or the tabernacle of Moloch. And the star of the god of Rumpha. That's what they did. He gave it to them. Now you ask the question, well, I, why would he give them their false gods? Judgment. Do you understand how foolish it is to follow a false god? It's a man-made god. <laughs> it will get you nothing. It will get you Eternity separated from God. Why would that be a good thing? There's nothing good in that. God gives them over to the idols of their heart. And friends, this is what we are like. This is what our country is like. When we reject God for, their, for the idols of our hearts, we are choosing to play in dirty toilets instead of basking in the glory of God. That's exactly what happens. And God, in His justice, gives us our heart's desire in order to shame us and expose us and call us to repentance, in a sense. Do you see what you're doing? And this is what God did to Israel. He gave them their idols. So as they got in the depth of their depravity, hopefully they would what? See the error of their ways and repent. 
but it took them all the way to Babylon. And that's what happened. This is a very, very important point of Stephen's message. Stephen begins to explain how so-called religious acts of worship at the tabernacle or temple can actually be acts of idolatry and false worship. Now, I, I want you to get this because I would argue that this is probably the most important point of his whole sermon. Listen closely. They had taken the temple. They had taken the law. They had taken all of these things and made them idols in and of themselves. Their religious acts became what they were about. And they made a God in their own mind that accept their worship even though it was flawed and not according to the scriptures. Stephen quotes from Amos 5.25 and what he's doing here is saying the fathers had a tabernacle. They had a tabernacle. But they replaced the God that was supposed, it was supposed to point to to false gods. What does this sound like, ladies and gentlemen? It should scream to you something. We're taking the Lord's Supper today. It should scream to you something. This sounds exactly like the Roman Catholic doctrine of the Lord's Supper, the sacraments. It's the same exact thing. Think about it. They've taken something that God established to point back to the object of true worship, who is Jesus. They've taken it and made it the idol. And that's exactly what the Jews did. God had given them a tabernacle. God had given them the law. And they had turned it into a religious act of appeasing their gods. They had tried to marry the gods of Egypt and the gods of the Canaanites with the God of the Old Testament, the law. You know what that is? That's not a true God. That's a lie. Oh, so what is this? This is a warning. This is a huge warning to all of us. Listen to me closely. Is your Jesus the Jesus of the Bible? Are your religious acts just religious acts? He's exposing the sons of Israel's wrong religious practices. And again, this is so pertinent to what, pertinent to what Peter's, peoples of Stephen's day were doing. They exalted the law and the temple, but their objects of worship were not, in fact, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It was a different God that they made. If there's one thing you get out of this message, I hope you get this. Religious acts mean nothing if the heart is not committed to the right God. Period. Get that. I'll say it again. Listen. Religious acts mean nothing if the heart is not committed to the right God. We got lots of religious people in our country. But there's a lot of dead people in our country. Dead people walking. How do we know? Because our lives don't match the message of the Bible. And beloved, if you take the Lord's Supper and your heart is not truly committed to Jesus Christ, then you are no different than the sons of Israel. Taking the Lord's Supper is not your way to get some extra favors from God. It's not your way to do some religious duty and therefore get God's pat on the back. You did it this week. Way to go. 
taking the Lord's Supper is about honoring and exalting the King who died in our place. Knowing who He is and what He's done. Is your motive for going to church the exaltation of Jesus Christ who came to die for you and rise from the dead and who is presently reigning over His bride? Or is your motive for going to church to appease your conscience of living a sin-polluted life with the hope that your God will forgive you if you keep coming to church and you clean yourself up? That's scary, isn't it? Do you get that? Come to church. Does that make you better? No. We don't come to church to get cleaned up. We come to worship the king who cleaned us up. This was the children of Israel's problem throughout much of the Old Testament. They were religious. You know what petrifies me? I'm sitting here trying to memorize 1 Corinthians 6, 9 to 20 with you all so that the guys all stand up next week and we're going to say it together, right? Next Sunday, right? 1 Corinthians 6, 9 to 20. You all got that memorized, right? And I'm struggling with it all week. And wow, man, i got to do that. i got to spend more time on this. I'm never going to get this. And then it hit me. You know that many of the Jews, many of the Jews during Jesus' day had the first five books of the Bible memorized. That's, that should petrify you. That should, that, should just shake, that should shake every one of you. What does it say about the motive of the heart? The motive of the heart can actually take the law of God and, and memorize it in order to appease God. Thinking that somehow I may earn some favor with God, the God that I've made up in my mind, by memorizing the first five books of the Bible. And he calls these same people, you stiff-necked and rebellious people. Dead religion. That's what it is. Dead religion. The religious rulers of Jesus and Stephen's day were no different than the sons of Israel throughout the history of the Old Testament. So what we see in Moses' life is... God was extremely gracious to his people. Amen. And God, in his grace, appointed Moses to be the deliverer of the people. And God was rejected. And his leader was rejected by the people. Yet even the rejected leader pointed to the coming Messiah who would one day be rejected. Now Stephen's focus changes a little bit. And Stephen begins to ramp up the confrontation coming concerning the temple. The people during Stephen's day had made the temple an object of worship instead of the temple pointing to the true object of worship, God, Yahweh. So we come to the tabernacle in temple time. Stephen addressed the temple because this was the part of the complaint against him. Remember, they had said this to him. He's blaspheming and he's against Moses, the law, and the temple. 
Yet even in this time period, we see three main themes. God's grace was consistently demonstrated towards his people. Even in the temple and tabernacle time, or the tent and tabernacle time. Notice in verse 44 it says, Our fathers had the tabernacle of testimony in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it, according to the pattern which he had seen. Now when you look at that first look at that, you say, well, what's so big about that? How is that God's grace? Well, look at the little phrase, tabernacle of testimony. That's very important. This title points to the gracious purpose of the tabernacle. Why did God establish a tabernacle? Why did he do it? It was God's testimony. This is who God is. This temple, this tabernacle, this tent was supposed to point to them to who God was. It was supposed to give a little glimpse. It was not God. The tent itself was not God. But it was to point to who God was. His holy nature. His holy character. Y'all all know about the tabernacle, the tent, right? You have the inner part. You have an outer tent. And then you have an outer, outer area. What was it supposed to show? That God was so holy that you could not approach the holy God. And only one person could go into the holy of holies one time of the year. So God is a holy God. The tent and the tabernacle were a testimony that God was a holy God. But what did the people do? No big deal. Let's make it about the tent itself. That's that's crazy. It's crazy. It's not about the tent itself. It's not about the temple. It's about the one that the temple was supposed to reveal. It's about God. It's about Yahweh. It's about the Holy One. The dimensions and the setting for it of the tabernacle were clearly laid out by Moses in great detail, aren't they? Y'all read your Bibles. You read the Pentateuch. You see the detail, isn't it? It's staggering, isn't it? Why? Why such precision to show the holiness of God, to show how holy God is? The tent and then later the temple were supposed to reveal that God was a holy God, a righteous God. The tent was later, and notice in verse 47, replaced by the temple during Solomon's day. But first there's a note here. Of God's grace given to David. I want you to notice in verse 45. The temple was actually promised to God from God to David first. It says, And having received it in their turn, our fathers brought it in with Joshua upon dispossessing the nations whom God drove out before our fathers until the time of David. David found favor in God's sight and asked that he might find a dwelling place for God before the God of Jacob. Notice here, Stephen makes an important point. Even God, David himself, rather, did not get to see the temple built. David was a man after God's own heart. He was a hero of Israel. But as we have seen and will see in 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel with Mark on Sunday nights, David was not a perfect man. Matter of fact, he was a sinful man. A redeemed Sinful man, but a sinful man at that. We know this because blood would not depart from his household after Bathsheba. You remember? 
I think this is part of the reason why God did not allow him to build the very temple he had promised to him. Why? Because of his sin. He wanted to be, he wanted David to be a man of holiness. Because after all, if you were going to build a house of God, you needed to be what? A man of holiness. But again, I see the, the grace of God because what happens? Solomon, his son, builds it. And was Solomon a man of holiness? No. Over and over and over. I think there's two possible points Stephen was making here to the men, the religious elites. Though David was a hero of Israel, one of the greatest of God's appointed leaders of Israel, David still did not get to experience God's presence in the temple of God because of his own sin. God was saying, take God seriously. His presence is something to be taken seriously. And second, Stephen could have been saying, if the temple was so important, you guys make it all about the temple. If the temple was so important, why didn't God allow his chosen king David to build it? I think in a sense he says, look, it's not about the temple. It's about the God who dwells in the temple. Either way, Stephen properly credited Solomon as the builder of God's temple, right? This again showed the grace of God. Of all the people to build the temple, Solomon would have been one of the least likely in light of his own idolatry, correct? But God continued to give grace to the people. And he raised up leaders like David and Solomon to point to the one to come. However, notice Stephen makes a very important clarification about the temple. And at this point, he basically takes their whole religion at their time and turns it upside down on its head. I want you to look at verse 48. He says, Stephen says, However, the Most High does not dwell in houses made by human hands. As the prophet says, Heaven is my throne and earth is the footstool of my feet. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what place is there for my repose? Was it not my hand which made all these things? Beloved, Stephen was making a crucial point here. God is bigger than the temple that you are worshiping. The people had made a God in their minds that could be contained in a temple. And he was reminding them that in fact, God wasn't even in the temple. God could not be contained by the temple. Stephen, with these words from Isaiah 66, confronts the religious idolatry of his day. Oh, this guy, this Stephen, I want to be like him. Totally unafraid. Totally unashamed. They confronted him and said, you are playing down the temple. And what's he say? You are playing down the temple. You've made the temple a, wor a means for our worship. It's about God, not the temple. He does the very thing that they say that he shouldn't do. He goes against them. Remember, everything that they said, the opposite was true, right? And so what's he do? He says, everything you say, the opposite is true. What is this? This is confrontation. Now, let me ask you a question real quick. How well do we do with this kind of confrontation? Beloved, how do you do when you're confronted? 
When you're confronted with the truth about who God is, how do you do? Do we do the same thing that the people did to Stephen? Who are you to judge? I heard it this week. This week I saw it. I confronted the idolatry of our country and said that what are they doing? People are being turned over into homosexuality. They're getting judgment from God because they have rejected God. And I confronted a false teaching. I said, this is darkness and this is light. I didn't even point out who was who, but it was you could have figured it out. Because John MacArthur's commentary was there, and or study Bible, and Joyce Myers was the other one. And it was sitting on that, yeah, it was sitting on the Christian bookstores right next to each other. So I took a picture, darkness and light, and confronted it. And immediately, I was accused of what? Being judgmental. Beloved, where are the ones that will stand for the truth? I was thankful I didn't have to give the defense. Many of y'all came, no, you need to look at your heart. Look at these verses. It was awesome. It was great. I was very thankful. Other Stevens stepped up. Look, I'm not always a hero. I'm not always that way. Just get that clear. The reality is, is we need to step up, don't we? And confront sin. Why? Not because we think we're better, but because we know that hope is found in being confronted with sin. And this confrontation by Stephen only gets ramped up. Look at this. Can you imagine if somebody posted this on Facebook? You men are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, always resisting the Holy Spirit. You are doing just as your fathers did. Which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who previously announced the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. You who received the law as ordained by angels, and yet that did not keep it. Wow. Can you imagine sermons like this? I wonder if we did a poll and we looked at all the servants and we could look at them, how many of them would have this kind of confrontation in them? Very few, if any. No, you made a mistake. You, you, you just you got to have the power of positive thinking. Think better and your marriage will be better. Just don't think about those mistakes you've made. You stiff-necked and uncircumcised of heart and ears. Wow. Now, I think it's very important that he's not like those at the USF, uh, on USF that preach, some of the guys that preach there that give no grace. It's not to the point of being legalistic. Because what does he do? He offers hope even in his confrontation. Where You say, where's the hope? The hope is in the one that they murdered, the righteous one. See, it's when we figure out that we are the ones that killed Jesus that we then understand and we what? Repent. When we see our responsibility in the death of the Messiah, then what do we do? We turn from our sin and trust in Him. This is the application of Stephen's sermon. 
Beloved, we see a pattern em- to emulate here in Stephen. We all want to, the, the non-cessationist people want us to pattern uh, the signs and wonders. How about this? Let's pattern his confrontation with the gospel. That's what we need to do. We need to step up. If Stephen was just wanted to please the Pharisees, he could have stopped short of this last section, couldn't he? But friends, a sermon without saying, so what does this mean for our lives? If you don't say, what's the implication? Then it's just a theological discussion. Uh, this is so important. There is a debate going on, even in, um, in, in homiletics class, that is, preaching class, and some of the things that I'm learning. Should we make application in our sermons? Should we make application in our sermons? Well, folks, if we don't, all we're going to be is a theological dump truck. I can fill your heads with a whole bunch of knowledge about who God is. But if I'm not saying your life better change and be different, then it's, no, it's just theological facts. I don't want a church that can win every Jeopardy game on Bible trivia. I want a church of people that want to submit to Christ and live for Him and mortify sin. And that's what Stephen did. He said, these are the theological facts. Now get to it. Repent. And as I said, this repentance isn't a one-time deal. Every one of us are falling on our knees regularly, correct? Because we see so often that we are still prone to follow our idols. Beloved, we don't preach the gospel without a call for repentance and faith in Jesus. We are not proclaimers of religious facts. We want changed hearts. We want changed lives. We want humble servants. And Stephen preached for this kind of change. He confronted for the purpose of offering hope and forgiveness to those who repented. In this case, he sealed his message with his blood too. You know what? This will tell us a lot about our message, won't it? We we who love to confront people but then aren't willing to Repent daily, there's a major problem. Do you understand? If you're running around confronting everybody, but you don't see brokenness in your own heart, there's a problem. That is you elevating yourself over other people's. That's not the confrontation that Stephen's talking about here. Check your heart, ladies and gentlemen. It will make you much more gentle in your confrontations. Is there a time for direct confrontation? Absolutely. But make sure you check your heart first. Was Stephen direct and confrontational? Absolutely. But his purpose was the exaltation of Christ and the conversion of his listeners. That is so important. You say, Mike, how do we know that he really wasn't just trying to win a battle? How do we know that he wasn't just trying to win an argument? How do we know that he wasn't just given this great theological discussion 
and he really wanted them converted? How do we know? Answer, watch him die, ladies and gentlemen. Watch him die. Do not hold this against them. Then you know that he was for real. Ah, the enemy's wicked, isn't he? He gets people confronting people for the purpose of self-righteous judgment. But then he makes the believers so totally incapable of standing up for any kind of truth because they walk around without trusting in Christ and trusting in His forgiveness that's found in Christ. Beloved, look at it. Look what he says. You men who are stiff-necked. This phrase literally means you obstinate ones. You stubborn, headstrong, prideful men. Stephen confronts the religious leaders directly for their wicked condition. In a sense, he says, you are a group of prideful, sinful men who need a heart change. Wow. Moses had told his people back in Deuteronomy 10, 16, that they had the same problem. And so Stephen repeats it. And he says, You are also uncircumcised in heart and ears. The idea here is that these men needed a heart change. They needed to start listening with ears of faith. His point was not that they had literally lost their hearing or they didn't have problems. They weren't deaf. That wasn't the issue. The issue was their heart, what they did with the truth. Oh, beloved, listen to me. What do you do with the truth? Does it go in one ear and out the other? Or does it change you? Are you broken by it regularly? Are you seeing your need for a Savior daily? I hope we're not these like these people. I don't know about you. Do you want to be like this? But again, for the unbeliever, this should have brought them to a moment of desperation. Why? Why should it have brought them to a moment of desperation? They should have said a a question immediately to Stephen. They should have said the same thing to Moses. What should have been their response when Moses said, circumcise your heart in Deuteronomy 10? What should have been their response when Stephen says, you uncircumcised of heart and ear? What should they have said? What do we do? I can't change my heart. I can't make my heart different. And that's what the one who God is drawing to himself says. We are constantly, aren't we? Anybody in here? I can't do this without you. I need you. That doesn't mean let go and let God. It means this. It means I am desperately in need of you, so I will obey, because I know you will hear me. Change my heart. Oh God, that's what David said, right? Cleanse me. Make me new. Is that who you are? Are you a repenter? 
We need the internal work of God in our hearts. That's a fact, don't we? Now, don't fall off the Tulian side and think that it's only grace or it's only grace without any effort. Doesn't mean that God is going to do this magical work. So we're going to sit here and we're going to sit in this building until God changes our hearts. No. We're going to trust that God is going to change our hearts because he says he is in his believers. Work out your salvation in fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Both. Here, these unconverted needed to cry out and say, change me. That would have only happened if God was working. But then Stephen continued, who are always resisting the Holy Spirit. Now, when we, at first glance, we might be tempted to think, well, this sure uh, hurts the irresistible grace camp, right? Does it? Who ears are always resisting the Holy Spirit? Resisting here is emphasizing these men's continuous rebellion against God's revelation of himself. The Spirit of God had worked in the disciples over and over since Pentecost, and yet none of them were turning. God was showing himself through signs and wonders and great revelation. The apostles were speaking. They were saying, look, Jesus died. Jesus rose from the dead. They were giving the glory of the gospel over and over and over. Remember, this is the same council that the apostles have already stood before twice. Same group of guys. What were they resisting? They were not resisting the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. Don't get that wrong. What they were resisting is the Holy Spirit's work in the proclamation of the gospel. That's what they were resisting. They were standing against the gospel. Now comes the punchline. Look at it. You are doing just as your fathers did. This was, this was a two-by-four across the face. Why? Because he had just shown them throughout the whole Old Testament that their fathers were wicked and rebellious and going against all the appointed leaders. And then they had said they wanted tradition. We want to follow our fathers. But again, who were they associating with? The leaders, not the followers. And so what does he say? You are doing just as your fathers did. And he asked a rhetorical question, which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? The answer, the rhetorical question, the answer is assumed, isn't it? None of them. <laughs> None of them were spared. You killed every one of them. You persecuted every one of them. He is basically saying to his audience, you are responsible for the death of the prophets. And then he heightens it. They killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. You killed Jesus. That's what they, he said. You know, there's some great irony in this passage. It, it, it's amazing. He says you are responsible for killing Jesus. If they would have just accepted and embraced that truth, and turned from their sins, they would have had all their sins paid for because Jesus died to pay for their sin. But if they didn't repent and believe in him, they were responsible only to the effect of the murder side of the issue. They didn't get the atonement side of the issue. That's scary. 
They didn't get the atonement. They only got responsibility for killing him. Handing him over to the judge. And handing him over to Pilate. What do we do with Jesus, though? Do I think the gospel is crucial for your sanctification and for your justification? Absolutely. See, it is your understanding of your sin in light of what it cost Jesus that will change your life. As you understand the depth of your depravity, even after you're justified and declared right with God, it's still a a, a great motivator in our lives, isn't it? When we say, yes, I'm responsible for his death, then we find the glory of the gospel and we're reminded that we are saved by his grace. And then every one of us in the room say, okay, Lord, what do you want me to do? I will obey you. Here, they didn't get it. And so what did they do? They didn't obey the law. They didn't keep it. They didn't follow it. Why? Because their hearts were far from God. They didn't embrace the truth of the gospel. They were just like their fathers. Next week we'll look at the response of the people to this very powerful message. So my question to you is this. What is your response to this message? For all of us that now take the Lord's Supper, we take it with the idea that we want to now worship Him because He died in our place. We want to remember who He is and what He's done for us and what He's doing for us. If you're not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, please do not take the Lord's Supper. Why? Because if you have not repented and trusted in Christ, then what are you doing? The same Thing the religious Pharisees did when they went to the temple. Who is the object of your worship? The Lord Jesus Christ. And that's why we come today to celebrate this supper. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this ordinance that reminds us of who Christ is and what he did for us. Help us to examine our hearts now, and as we take this Lord's Supper, let us do it in a way that honors you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.